0: thanks for joining us for the latest episode of the disrupt podcast the fortnightly podcast brought to you by the team at disrupt africa my name is gabriella mulligan
1: and i'm tom jackson every two weeks disrupt podcast wraps up all the big news from africa's startup ecosystems including exclusive interviews with special guests
0: this is still a very new initiative so keep sending us your feedback for now though let's get straight into the news from the last two weeks
2: African
1: startups continue to carry the fight to COVID-19, developing solutions to tackle the crisis and its associated effects. Ethiopian edtech startup Accelerated has launched a coaching program for parents on Telegram to help them adapt to the new reality of homeschooling. South African startup Kenai, which uses facial recognition tech to transform the way companies manage people entering their buildings, now helps businesses screen employees for the virus.
0: Tech startups are innovating in other ways too, none more so than in the fintech space. Nigerian data science startup Voyance has launched Sigma, a fraud monitoring platform for fintech companies that aggregates data in order to block fraudsters. Another Nigerian fintech, Carbon, rolled out its express service, allowing its customers to access its services from within whatever app they're using.
1: It was a fortnight of bumper funding for African startups, with 70% of last year's total funding figure now having been raked in within the first five months of 2020. South Africa has been leading the way of late, with several standout rounds. Agritech startup Aerobotics raised $5.5 million from NASPA's foundry. Mobile gaming startup Carry First secured seed funding worth $2.5 million, and employee engagement company WiseTalk banked a multi-million euro investment. EdTech startup Seafunda also raised, as did three fintech startups, Comparisure, Peach Payments, and Inclusivity Solutions. More from the latter later. South African startups received further good news with the announcement that Silicon Valley-based VC firm Plug & Play will open its first African office in Johannesburg later this year.
0: There was major funding news elsewhere too. Ghanaian e-health company M-Pharma banked $17 million, while Kenyan startups Apollo Agriculture, Access Afia and Marketforce closed their own rounds. Nairobi-based healthcare incubator and investor Vilgro Kenya has invested a total of $90,000 into Kenyan startup The Pathology Network and Uganda's Clinic PESA while Nigerian startups Tambua Health, Brass and FunnelJoy secured investment from early-stage fund Ventures platform. Eight Tunisian startups meanwhile took home $65,000 each after taking part in the Flat6 Labs Tunis Accelerator program. Last but not least, Uganda solar startup OneLamp and Egyptian hardware startup Interact Labs secured funding commitments after taking part in the Zoom-based Shark Tank-type pitching initiative The Nest. Tom caught up with Jim Chu, founder of The Nest, to hear more.
1: Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tom. Tell us a little bit about The Nest and how it came about. What, uh, what inspired you to launch this uh, new initiative?
3: Well, The Nest is, uh, create, well, was created to connect frontier market entrepreneurs with angel investors worldwide. It got started during the COVID crisis. We were looking for different ways to reach out to investors and especially uh, investors in North America and Europe. And you know some of the more obvious ideas came up first for digital formats, blogs, podcasts, and so on. But uh, what really excited me was watching Shark Tank with my kids, and I realized a format like that would be great if we did it online, and it would be a real refresher connecting entrepreneurs with um, with angels uh, in, in the U.S. at least, and, and also in Europe. So uh, we pulled together a little team, uh, pulled together some companies and some angels, and then launched the first Nest. Uh, after the first Nest, we realized that there was something there. Um, we saw people interacting online that I've never seen before, and that there was a critical mass, more than a critical mass, people who were willing to come on and pitch their stuff, but also angels who were willing to get online and uh, talk to companies all the way around the other side of the world. All
1: right, great. Um, and what, uh, what outcomes have you had so far?
3: Yeah, so it's been uh, just over a month, and we've had commitments of close to half a million dollars. And these are all commitments going to very early stage companies, mostly seed round companies. So we think that's, uh, that's quite an achievement for the for short amount of time, and given the fact that uh, none of these people have actually met live in person.
1: Um, is there a certain type of company you're looking for when it comes to when it comes to startups
3: pitching? Well, I think the first and foremost we want companies that have strong potential to grow, and uh, you know we try to identify those companies up front and develop a database of uh, a really good pipeline of those kind of companies. But then we look at what uh, are interesting to the angels we have in our network. So we really try to do some upfront matching. We try to understand what uh, verticals and what stages of companies certain uh, angels are interested in and then try to find companies that fit those interests. But with, of course, the first stage being that they're strong companies that are all investable. So we really don't have a very specific geographic focus or vertical focus, even a phase focus, but rather uh, alignment to what angels are interested in, in investing in. That said, you know, given the, the the format of the call and uh, the the investment um, ticket sizes of the angels, they tend to be uh, seed round or Series A. Um, it's hard to make a, a you know a big ticket in in a short amount of time. Um, so Series B companies and so on are usually uh, out of the picture. The other aspect too is we're really trying to address a missing. Uh, a missing space in the Africa and deer market uh, investing ecosystem, which is really seed companies. There's actually quite a bit of stuff happening with uh, Series B and, and even Series A companies, but the ecosystem for seed C- C companies is still pretty uh, nascent, I think. And I think one of the things we discovered with the Nest is because we can create some critical mass across boundaries, across across uh, frontiers, borders. We're able to get more of a critical mass than if we were just to have it in you know, Cape Town or Johannesburg or even a South Africa uh, pitching session. So by bringing together angels from around the world and also from different uh, entrepreneurs from different com- uh, countries, we're able to create a, a critical mass that makes sense for a seed stage uh, investing system.
1: I think... Myself, like probably many other people, my suspicion of programs like Shark Tank, for example, is that um, funding commitments made on the program don't necessarily then materialize in real life, so to speak. Um, How do you sort of ensure a a join up between what happens on the show and what happens in the startup's bank account, if you know what I mean?
3: Yeah, and so some of this, it goes both ways, right? So sometimes what uh, entrepreneurs represent in the five minutes or seven minutes that they have um, isn't uh, quite accurate. And so once we start doing due diligence, uh, we find other things that uh, w- you know, perhaps were different than what we had understood during the presentation. So sometimes they don't pan out. Um, however, and what we've seen is more often than not, um, we actually end up with larger commitments and larger rounds than we originally had committed during the show. That's happened uh, with a number of the companies. Um, uh, in, in the last two weeks. So for example, uh, we had, uh, I made a, a commitment to invest in Soulshare. Well, between the time that we, we made that commitment on the show, um, a number of other individuals came on board and started looking at them and we're probably going to do a much larger round than my original 50 K commitment. In fact, I think we already have hundred K committed, uh, to Soulshare, And I think uh, a little bit might be coming in.
1: Since this COVID crisis began uh, a lot of a lot more things are happening on platforms like Zoom and Teams and Meet than apps had gone on before, and people are sort of figuring out how to use these platforms. How do you go about managing a Zoom call that has three startups pitching to three different investors with potentially hundreds of people listening in?
3: Well, you know, I was actually a very, very early adopter of Zoom back in 2013. When my kids were, gosh, back then they were four years old, I found a great feature in Zoom where Um, They love their iPads. And so we would actually draw together. So real-time drawing at this time. And they loved it. And so I was on Zoom very early on with my kids. I ran my board meetings with Zoom. Um, So ever since 2015 or so, I've been a, a, a big advocate of Zoom. And so it wasn't difficult for me to say, okay, well, these are the features that I know Zoom can do. I can record. I can... Create an interactive form with a chat box. I can mute people all at once. Um, so I was already quite familiar with Zoom, and so it wasn't very difficult for me to, to to you know implement the technical best practices to make it work. Now, obviously, we've learned along the way what makes and what doesn't make sense, and we've you know tried different things. But I think part of it was just that comfort with seeing that format in the first place to be able to say, "Let's do it."
1: So good for you. I think anyone that's done an interview of Disrupt Africa in the last few weeks will be fully aware that I am not very good at managing a Zoom call. Uh, so <laughs> it sounds like you're handling much better. Um, in general, how do you ensure quality on the nest on the startup side and on the investor side?
3: So we actually do quite a bit of vetting. So Maxime Servat,as uh, my colleague at Untapped, um, you know, he he not only screens many of the companies, but he does fairly thorough. Vetting processes for each of the companies that end up coming on the show. So you know, even though the application process is very easy, it's uh, you, know, you send a thirty to sixty second uh, video via WhatsApp to a number. Uh, we actually then vet uh, in quite a bit of detail uh, each of the companies before they actually come on. So we want to make sure that first of all that the entrepreneurs can present and can do a, a good job of presenting online on Zoom. So we, for example, have a technical call prior to the actual call to make sure that everything works on their end. Um, but we also obviously make sure that the companies are interesting and investable. And so there's actually quite a bit of work in the background prior to each call um, before the entrepreneurs come on. So, you know, one of the other things is we, we try not to make this too polished, because if it's too polished... You know, it becomes a TV show and that's not what this is. This is an interactive forum. And so there will be, there will be things that screw up. There will be times when people say something that is non-scripted or non, uh, not expected. And so we, we want people to uh, engage with the angels, engage with the companies in a very authentic and open way. Uh, The way I see this is this is a democratic platform and we're trying to use Zoom as a, a leveler, right? So there are no VIP plat passes. There are no visas you have to get to attend this. Anybody can join. Anybody who has an internet connection, of course, can join.
1: From a startup's point of view, how difficult is it and how different is it pitching in this manner? Because I guess during a fit, like an online physical pitching event, even you would be feeding off the audience or feeding off an investor's reaction. I mean, is it is it a new challenge for, for founders pitching in this way?
3: Well, yeah. I mean, I think most... Entrepreneurs who already know how to pitch do fine on Zoom. So the transition from real-life pitching to um, Zoom pitching isn't that different. So uh, I think the the main transition is that you do need to stay more concise and more focused. And there isn't as much back and forth. So uh, the entrepreneurs need to know what they want to say. And they need to know uh, how to keep things concise. But you know, we we try to prep entrepreneurs that message, and uh, we try to pick entrepreneurs who already have the pitching ability to make it work.
1: And on the investor side, you're, a, you're an angel investor yourself. I mean, how attractive is this um, this sort of concept to to people like you?
3: Well, so I think uh, the the nest is an interesting way to um, have more direct contact, contact with the entrepreneurs. And uh, I know I've discovered company otherwise would never have discovered. So I think from that perspective or two perspectives, really, one, it gives me a window into something that uh, helps me better understand the entrepreneurs and the markets. And second, more tactically, it uh, helps me identify companies that uh, I would never have found in the first place and want to be, uh, be supporting. So I'm, I also invest through funds. I'm an investor in uh, in one other uh, Africa-focused uh, seed fund, uh, Launch Africa. Um, and so they do a lot of vetting. They do a lot of work in identifying uh, companies. But, you know, I'm quite distanced from that. So I actually like being involved. And especially when I find promising entrepreneurs in, in developing markets, um, that's what excites me the most, to see somebody who doesn't have the same... Uh, economic advantage and background as as I've had in the us but be able to develop a business and bring it to success in, in an incredible way i mean that's what energizes me and so being directly in contact and supporting entrepreneurs like that is what you know my company and what uh, my raison on dates is does this crisis
1: sort of throw up any challenges to from the investment point of view um in terms of I mean is it a big challenge conducting in the in the current scenario how 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 are investors sort of adapting to these to these challenges
3: yes yeah, a great question i think a lot of uh, due diligence has actually stopped in a more traditional sense um, and so i think we've uh, we have adapted to that to a certain extent by choosing companies that we're willing to make smaller ticket sizes into without as much upfront due diligence as for example, a series B institutional investor would do. So we're still trying to move money during this crisis, even though that physical due diligence, due diligence is at times not possible. And we think that as kind of format and through uh, seed rounds, there's quite a bit that can be done even without uh, that physical contact.
1: How big has investor interest been? And are you sort of getting an impression from, from running these sessions that um, Africa's angel investor scene is? Like a bit a bit bigger than perhaps people think it is.
3: Yeah, so that's a that's a great question, Tom. I, I think that uh, what I've discovered is that there are quite a few investors and funds and ecosystems out there focused on seed stage investing, angel investing uh, in, in in sub-Saharan Africa. The issue is that it's quite fragmented. You have the Southern African uh, groups, you have the East African groups, you have the West African groups. So, uh, and, and yeah, I don't want to say that we knew this from the beginning, but one of the uh, benefits of, of this type of digital form is that we're able to bring all that together. And so we can now see a little bit more clearly that it's quite substantial in terms of the number of funds and people and investors who are interested in, in early stage startups, tech startups in Africa. So that's been quite, uh, quite revealing.
1: And how important are these angel investors once they do get involved with a startup? I mean, from a cash and a non-cash perspective.
3: Yeah, so I think um, uh, even more so than if you will, yes, uh, or Silicon Valley angel investing, the the angels that um, have been involved with some of these companies have been extremely, um, I would say, value add in their engagements with the, the entrepreneurs, uh, providing introductions to uh, different companies. Uh, talking about uh, bringing their processes and their their models to their regions, um, I, you know, I think that's been much more valuable than the actual money. Actually, to, to be honest, uh, I think the angels we've had on the show have been really high value add angels that uh, are well connected, and not only can bring in other investors, but really at the end of the day, bring in the business relationships that can help. These startups go to the next stage, whether that's in scaling up their business or making the right commercial contacts to get more customers.
1: And obviously, the this started as a response to the COVID nineteen crisis. What happens, hopefully, when this crisis passes and everything starts to get back to normal?
3: Yeah, you know, I, I think we've we've found something interesting here, uh, and you know, obviously, once lockdowns ease up. There's probably going to be less of an interest in an online forum, but uh, we 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 think that there is a um, there's a benefit to creating this kind of critical mass online. So we 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 definitely intend to keep it going. Uh, we like to to see the nest be focused on different regions. So we have some regional partners. So uh, I'm actually happy to announce that on June 18th, we'll be partnering with the Lions Den in South Africa to do a joint. Um, pitching session, Lions and the Nest, uh, focused on uh, Southern African uh, startups. So with Rob Hersov and his team, we're going to be doing that together. So that's going to be one of our first, uh, what I call regional partner Nests, but I hope to see many more of those in the future. Uh, Nest Asia, Nest Latin America, perhaps Nest uh, East Africa. West Africa, etc. And the idea here is, yeah, we let's take advantage of the, the the fact that there are regional players who know more about the the, the startup ecosystem in those regions than we would ever do, be able to. But at the same time, we can create a hybrid version of these pitch sessions. So yes, you can have a actual physical pitch session in Nairobi, and you have people doing your traditional networking in person. But then there is a connection virtually via Zoom with a much more uh, global audience. So you can have the benefits of both worlds. You can have that local touch and access and the critical mass that you get from a cross-regional global approach. So that's that's what we, uh, we, we, we intend to do. And uh, my, my hope, uh, my aspiration is that we get a lot more people from North America and Europe uh, investing in sub-Saharan Africa, as well as other frontier markets, uh, Southeast Asia and so on. And uh, people really start to see not only the opportunity coming from sub-Saharan Africa, also the amount of impact that their investment can make in those countries.
1: Thank you very much for giving us this interesting initiative. Good luck with it for the future. And uh, thank you for joining us on the podcast.
0: Great to hear there's so much momentum to keep investing in African startups throughout the pandemic.
1: Yes, as we heard in the news, there's definitely no sign of a slowdown in funding for local startups for now. In fact, Gabriella, you spoke to one of the headline fundraisers of the week, South Africa's Inclusivity Solutions, recently, didn't you? What are they planning to do with their $1.3 million haul?
0: Yes, I did speak to Inclusivity CEO Jeremy Leach following their big series A news. He said they plan to continue expansion in existing markets and into new markets. They're investing in building new features and functionalities, and in particular, they're working on data analytics.
1: Inclusivity works with some pretty big partners to go to market, doesn't it?
0: They currently work with Equity Bank in Kenya, Airtel in Rwanda and Orange in Ivory Coast. So let's hear from Jeremy, sharing some insights on working with major MNOs in Africa. Your model is based on partnerships with mobile network operators. Why does that work well for insurance products in Africa?
2: Great question. So what we've seen, and again, it's... um, Yeah, it could be somewhat delicate, but what we've seen from the target markets, at least, in pretty much I think at least seven or eight countries where we've done um, kind of market research kind of over the years, maybe more actually, we've seen that clients typically prefer to buy insurance from a trusted brand such as a mobile operator, often more so than the insurers, because insurers sadly haven't have often not lived up to the promise in terms of paying claims um, when they're due and, and in a fast in a fast time. So we are seeing that. Players like mobile operators do have the trust, the brand, and the reach in the market to be able to offer products at scale, and that's a real value, um, uh, you know, real advantage for the mobile operators, and that that's positive. They also potentially have the payment mechanism, uh, which can support the payment of premiums effectively, um, and that's also kind of very key in the market because if you look at kind of um, what insurance needs to operate, it needs to have distribution at scale because insurance is all about the law of large numbers you need to have scale to make it kind of viable and you need to be bring the premiums down of course and secondly you need frictionless payments the ability for payments to be made without effort and that's where the big kind of focus is kind of going forward so in theory mobile operators have those advantages and that's that's exciting saying that There is a major challenge, if you allow me, that often if you look at the advent of mobile money, mobile money has been born around the idea of push payments that you want to give client control to your clients and therefore clients should initiate all payments. And that works well for products like electricity, where if you don't pay your electricity, your partner may be very upset because they're cooking in the dark. You know, clearly there's a direct impact on you if you don't pay for that service, you know, like electricity um, or water or whatever those kind of utilities are. Or if you don't pay remittance, your family um, or the business is going to be in under some serious kind of peer pressure to make, make right. Insurance, as we've seen in many markets, and if you look at behavioral economics as well, is an intangible product, which is the impact is only felt at the time of a claim when you need to, when you need the claim to be able to manage your shock. So there's no immediate repercussion for not paying on a regular basis. And unfortunately, because mobile money is built around the idea of push payments, there's not a good match in terms of insurance. So the big challenge for mobile operators with all the opportunity there is now to support this push towards frictionless payments, either have it embedded in in services bundled uh, with other products or services, Or recurring payments, which is, you know, debit orders or um, or auto-deduct, depending which market you're you're in. And that, unfortunately, has not been typically built into many mobile money platforms across the continent and beyond. And that's going to be one of the key areas going forward to really allow mobile operators to move into the insurance um, area with significant scale.
0: And what are the difficulties in securing M&O
2: partnerships? I think anybody who deals with B2B sales, business-to-business sales, recognise that dealing with big corporates is not necessarily kind of an easy job, particularly when there are so so many other priorities. I mean, for now, it's interesting that demand for insurance ha- or perceived demand for insurance from you know, mobile office has gone up because of the relevance around coronavirus. But saying that, there's still... They're still big corporates and you need to go through a very complicated process in order to make um, uh, make the case for kind of launching. I remember being a consultant to one a global mobile operator and they had five gates to get a new business up and going. The first gate to gate 0 took 9 months. That's not quick <laughs> by by any means. So engage your mobile operators you are dealing with a kind of a big corporate that in theory they should be agile but in practice they are they're not In practice, they're not. They've got quite structured decision-making around new businesses. They've got 100 priorities, which are all a top priority. And that means getting into um, getting new products or new initiatives involved in that is not an easy easy space. But I'm hopeful and positive that there's significant um, increasing understanding around the relevance of insurance that that should make the process easier going forward.
0: How is it, as a startup, um, working with MNOs on a long-term basis, you're very different entities, so how does that play out in practice?
2: We are really. We- it's also a slightly different kind of business and mindset. Insurance is typically an annuity-based business, so you build, you know, potentially build wealth for the insurer over time. Where often their business model is more around uh, shorter-term rewards and, and incentives. Um, so again, it's slightly different kind of structure from from that perspective. Um, the benefit of our team is many of the team have extensive experience in working with and in mobile operators. And um, so again, that means we've understand their language we understand their priorities and can support them in in the initiatives that they're in that in, the, in that, they're, that they're in but yes certainly there are different dynamics from you know very large co- corporate to being an agile kind of startup and different kind of commercial kind of thinking from insurance being a longer term annuity type business where some of the other initiatives not necessarily um, um kind of so so long- term And again, it's about ensuring that there's a meeting of minds and alignment in your uh, in what you're trying to achieve in the market.
0: And so how would you or what would you change about the MNO startup dynamic?
2: Let me quote a friend of mine um, from some years ago who was basically head of innovation uh, um, at a big mobile operator. Uh, and his comment was, uh, who, sorry, he's, who then subsequently left to, to, uh, form a startup of his own. And after experiencing it as a startup, he basically said to me, um, he feels that everybody in a big mobile operator should now take time out to go and work on the outside as a startup now working with a mobile operator and see how it feels like. Where in a mobile operator, three to six months is a fast turnaround time. In a startup, in his experience, you know, six weeks is a long period. So certainly um <laughs> one, you need to help understand the different dynamics in terms of the need for quicker turnaround times, would certainly um help between the mismatch between the big corporates and a startup environment. And increasingly we're seeing a, an increased understanding of, in, of that because of some of the mobile operators investing in VCs or being involved in that kind of VC space. So I think that's kind of positive. Two, a more of a um, Easier access to the right decision makers to to ensure that the priorities are aligned and driven. And thirdly, I think it would be, you know, practically working out how we can move faster on the, um, the some of the more technical integration issues, where again availability and capacity on the mobile operator is often quite limited to be able to get things done. So again, understanding more around how. They, we can help them with their focus on the kind of open APIs in such a way that we can move faster than we, we, we have been doing in some cases. Because, again, I think while we, t- we have a, a big hype around open APIs, in practice, those APIs are not so open and still require quite a lot of um, active hand-holding from the partners.
0: And so, finally, what advice do you have for uh, African startups perhaps seeking an MNO partnership to be able to scale their products across the continent?
2: Good question. I'll pass on some advice I received from one of our investors, Dare Okuju from MFS Africa, you know, some years ago. And his recommendation to me, which I think still makes sense, don't don't spend a lot of time trying to secure a group deal from day one. Uh, Group dynamic is challenging and often there's a different dynamic between group and the operating company. Um, generally, if you want to get something going well in a market, you need to secure one operating company, get that working well. Once it's working well on one operating company, Opco, then you'll be able to start spinning out across other Opcos as the CEOs talk and engage. And that will allow you to to, to learn fast, to roll, to basically secure more deals, and then that will allow you to go to group. I think a lot of companies spend a lot of time saying, we want a group deal, and in practice, there's a lot of skeletons on that uh, on that path.
0: Great advice. Thanks so much for answering all my questions.
2: My pleasure. Thank you.
4: Simon. Our business Cashback app is a mobile couponing app that consumer goods companies in Kenya use to reward their consumers with cashback via M Pesa. Consumers buy promoted goods from their favorite retailers and then scan the receipts into the app and get real cashback. The app helps FMCGs to deploy promos very fast, grow sales, and also get consumer insights. The retail market in Kenya is big, 18 billion to be exact, and it's growing at 6% per annum, so it's a, it's a good opportunity. We are live in Clean Chef supermarket, one of the largest in Kenya. We have 2,500 downloads. We've signed up our first FMCD customer, PZ Carson, and two more are coming on board this month. We've also partnered with Ipsos, the global market research firm, to deliver paid service to manage their consumer panels in East Africa using the app. Please email me on simon.gigi at cashbackmobileapp.com and download the app from Google Play and test it out. Thank you.
1: That's it for the latest episode of Disrupt Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it.
0: Tell your friends and colleagues to check out Disrupt Podcast on their favorite podcasting platform. And we'll see you again next time. In the meantime, stay safe. Bye.
1: Bye.